0: This is com.
1: Welcome to Opinion Booth with myself, Sonia Booth. And today's title, Test Your Metal. I have Terry and Barbara Bell. And uh, Terry Bell is a South African journalist and labor commentator. In the mid-1960s, he and his wife Barbara were political exiles in London. They agreed it was time to get back to Africa. Now, what they decided to do is just crazy. They decided to paddle 11,000 kilometers from England to Dar es Salaam in a 5-meter glass fiber kayak. This led to their book, A Hat, A Kayak, and Dreams of Dar. This was brought on by a challenge given. Please share. Who gave you that challenge?
0: Well, there was a Canadian. I happened to have an appalling hat that I'd travelled all over South Africa with. I'd gone into exile with one of those terrible olive green felt bush hats with a mock leopard skin band. And uh, we, we ha- Barbara and I happened to be in Morocco, and a Canadian stole the hat. And another Canadian, I ranted about this to another Canadian who had, we'd been talking about canoeing and kayaking, and I'd said it's possible to kayak from London too. Tangier, he said, it's impossible. We would have left it at that, but then my hat got stolen. And this other Canadian said, Kent Warmington, he said, I'll follow this person and I will get your hat back for you. And that's where it might have ended. We went back to London, Barbara went back to teaching, I went back to university, and uh, we forgot about it. And then months later, in those millions of people in London, I bumped into Kent at an underground station. And he said, did you get your hat back? And I said, what are you talking about? And it turned out that he had followed this person all the way through Europe to Afghanistan, to south of Kabul, where he finally got my hat back for, from someone else for six American dollars. He then posted it in a UN rice bag to London to the wrong address. He got mixed up between the apartment number and the street number that Barbara had given him. And so we didn't think much more of that, and off he went to Canada. And about three weeks after he'd left, a parcel arrived from Vancouver, and it was our hat. Because what he'd done was he'd put um, the return address at the Canadian High Commission. So when they looked him up and said, oh, he's gone back to Vancouver, they sent the parcel, which was just this rice bag with a hat in it, to Vancouver. He then sent the hat back to London. And I said to Barbara, this is it. We just have to. The guy challenged me that I couldn't canoe from London to Dar es Salaam. The least I could do, given that this hat has traveled like this, is let's buy a kayak. Barbara wasn't too keen. She wasn't keen all the way through. But I insisted that we buy a kayak and we paddle from London to Tangier. But then I looked at the map and familiarity breeds contempt. I said, oh, why not? We want to go to Dar es Salaam anyhow. Let's make it 11000 Kilometers to Dar es Salaam And that's how it all started Completely insane
1: Insane indeed I'm glad you said that Because I didn't want to Offend you in any way By <laughs> saying insane no, But I no. used the word crazy Earlier on Because it does sound Rather You know Not only far-fetched But I mean I, I admire your chutzpah So <laughs> y- Yesterday At the dinner table My father-in-law Paul Asks Who my guest is For tomorrow this is the conversation we had yesterday. I respond by telling him who my guests are and what we're going to be talking about. And I tell them about your book. And he says to me, you know, he lives in Muesenberg. And I said, hmm. And I said, how do you know? He says, um, Jack Callanan introduced me to him. He loves his Shannon Blank. That was my father-in-law, Paul Booth.
0: Yes. Uh, you <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay, yes. <laughs> Shin and Blanc is, yes, my, my, my white double, yeah. yes.
1: <laughs> so, uh, so I decided to bring you a bottle of my favorite Shannon Blank in celebration of your golden anniversary. So I hope you enjoy it. Oh, Here you go. Wonderful. Thank you
0: very much, Sonia. <laughs>
1: it's great. Thank <laughs> you, Sonia. It, it's, it's, it's only a pleasure. And I mean, I'm, I'm just so grateful to have, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the father-in-law that I have, um, Mr. Paul Booth, who's, um, uh, very, you know, well connected. And I mean, he knows, he knows very important people. Cause I mean, you're very important <laughs> people. I mean, I googled the little bit that I could about you just to prepare for the show, but a day was not enough to thoroughly, you know, um, research or Google enough for me to say I know you because I can't claim I can't claim that. So if you have seen movies such as Abandoned Ship, Lifeboat, The Deep, Life of Pi, Open Water, The Reef, Two Came Back, you would think Terry and Barbara had thrill-seeking issues. What did your family say when you broke the news of your upcoming challenge and venture?
0: Well, in the first place, I hadn't met – Barbara's parents hadn't met me then. Go on.
2: Yes, I had gone into exile, and I had known Terry in South Africa. We re-met in London, and we got together, and we got married. My parents had never met Terry, uh, ordinary white South Africans at the the time, um, and – I broke the news that I was, I'd married Terry. Took them a long time to connect who Terry was, which didn't really please them an awful lot, having him, having been in 90 days detention and myself having been involved in politics. But I think they were glad that I wasn't in the country. And, uh, when I sprung this on them and said, now we're going to go in this canoe and we're hoping to head for Africa, Dar es Salaam, they were horrified. They didn't know where, how we were going to do it. So I felt a bit bad, and I told them that I would send them a postcard from everywhere we were as regularly as I could, which I did. And my father, who was a very organized man, collected them all together, and he put them in an album, but he stuck them in the album. And many years later, after he died and we were living in New Zealand, my mother visited us and brought us the album, which we carted around wherever we went until...
0: Well, we looked at the no. pictures. We never thought of taking them out. But also, Barbara, remember during the break we took, we went and we bought one of the first ever reel-to-reel portable tape recorders. And we had these tapes which her father had also kept in little Viceroy cigarette packets. And we didn't buy, they because I did them on 1 and 7 eighths IPS as it used to be in those days. We couldn't find a recorder to play them on, so we forgot about them. We carted them around the world until finally – we tried to we were in london and we went to a place in soho and got them transcribed and after nearly a half a century all by one of them was transcribable onto cd's but then i didn't listen to them and it was only last year when we finally took those um postcards out of the album and suddenly realized because we didn't i didn't want to write the story because i said you can't rely on memory Yes, and suddenly here we had Barbara having written in this minute handwriting. You even wrote what we ate, didn't you? Um, I did everything. It was a diary. It was like it a really diary. really was a our diary. Diary, and we had the recordings as well. Uh, so we said, "Why not? We can actually do it." So we then got a fluvio carte, the um, map of the French waterways, because that was the main part of the journey—the rivers and canals of France. I mean, we didn't even know what a lock was until we got there. Oh, my God, we found out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: you paddled 11,000 kilometers. No, and
0: no. I- Barbara no. Barbara mutinied. Barbara mutinied outside of Barcelona. Um, she finally said, this is enough. Well, you might as well tell why. I, I lo- I'd lost the, the compass <laughs> overboard, but I didn't think it mattered, so I didn't tell her because I didn't think we'd have any need for the compass. We'd be close to the shore. And it just so happened that the one time we went right out to sea to cut across a place called the Bay of Rosas, the sea came up and fog came in. And I didn't have a compass. And then Barbara said, well, we can't see. It's a complete whiteout. Get the compass out. And I said... I'm sorry, but, <laughs> anyhow, that's when she found out that I'd lost the compass, and I think that's when you lost faith in me. <laughs> well, that's,
2: I had lost faith in Terry as a sailor. I have traveled a lot with Terry, hitchhiking, living in various vehicles in different parts of the world, but, uh, and he's great, but he's a, he always makes a plan, so he'll always fix things, quite Heath robinson me. but i don't think you can go to sea with those skills i think you really do need to know how to sail absolutely which he didn't and when <laughs> i realized that he'd lost the uh, compass and right at the beginning of the trip when we were still in england and we weren't quite sure where we were i asked him well, where are we so he pulled out <laughs> a map and it was a road map oh dear and i said terry how can we go to sea and rivers and, and all canals with a road map. He said, but it does show the coast. <laughs> Perhaps that's when I should have mutinied. So when I decided that um, he was not a sailor, I thought, I'd rather travel On land, thank you. My idea was simple. I I just said,
0: what we'll do is we'll take it very easy. We'll stop where we want to, even if it takes us longer than two years. We'll learn as we go. Our biggest problem was, and this is where I learned more, I think, in that period than I've ever learned in my life. I learned how ignorant I was. I also learned how little I knew about all sorts of things. But I learned also about making the wrong assessments. Because I thought no one would pay any attention to us, which is true normally. So I put out a little press release, hoping that, um, well, perhaps when we get somewhere down Gibraltar or somewhere, some yachting magazine or some would buy some of my features. But the very weekend I put that out, a man called Francis Chichester arrived in Portsmouth, having become the first person to sail single-handed around the world. And the English went mad. Anything to do with the sea, with adventure at the sea, became big news. And so we ended up with television people. And I was at university during the day and working as a sub-editor at night, so I was never there. And Barbara was left to deal with yachting correspondence from the Guardian newspaper and things like that. And we hadn't had time, well, I hadn't had time, to actually fit out the canoe or even to practice too much. I just said, we'll learn as we go. And that was a terrible mistake because, you see, Francis Chichester was, the, the English are very good about pageantry and whatnot, but he was then knighted. He became Sir Francis Chichester at Greenwich by Queen Elizabeth II with the same sword who had knighted Francis Drake, who'd sailed round the world 382 years earlier. Two Francis's, you know, all that oh my goodness. The publicity was extraordinary. So when we were going we were going to leave with just our friends, we had the ANC Youth League there, actually a man who became president and several cabinet ministers. <laughs> became cabinet ministers were among the youth league they were going to see us off in some university friends instead it became a scrum with television cameras oh, photographs a little old woman we hadn't seen ever before she ran up to us tears in her eyes said godspeed and hugged us we missed the tide because of all the stuff we had didn't have time to pack the kayak properly it was a shambles <laughs> and i said don't worry barbara once we get down the river we'll be away from this we couldn't because there were photographers on the bridges all the way down and then I realized, once we got further down, that the Thames Estuary is very wide. It's more than 10 kilometers wide. I also hadn't bothered to check it was a spring tide. So, yes, it started in a disastrous way and it went on that way. But I
2: think what we should fill in is the time it was, the 60s in London. I mean, we'd left the oppressive atmosphere of South Africa and we hit London and um, there was this incredible mood, particularly amongst the youth. People believed anything was possible. We all knew apartheid would end we 'd hope quite soon. We knew that the Vietnam War would fin- finish, and we got involved in the nuclear uh, anti-nuclear war campaign and it was just a different time, a time where Anything seemed possible. Tremendous
0: optimism. This Tremendous. is the whole point. It, it was a time of real optimism. It was also a time of economic boom. I think that was it. But, I mean, one of our songs that we used to sing was, Whenever for goes, the people shall rule. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> that was even before Foster and Boerter and all that sort of thing. So that was the point. We mm. genuinely thought anything was possible. And I think we were also young. and 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 in the process of which when we traveled through france we also learned an awful lot about people we also learned a lot about ourselves Mm. we lived incredibly cheaply because we had a tent we lived (laughs) at night our transport cost us nothing we shopped in various little markets and stalls very cheaply we learned how to survive we had only five liters of water two two and a half liter cans which is Useful for Cape Town these days. Absolutely. To know what we're doing. So we learned a lot. And we also learned about the places we went through. I'd done a lot of reading. I've been obsessed with I was told once by someone at a meeting, the trouble was I read too much. It, this is possibly true. I'd read a lot. But I hadn't actually practiced. And there's a thing called praxis. One should put practice as well as reading in. So off we went and we traveled through France. And I think, Bob, we learned a lot there. Quite apart from the fact that I, we learned to appreciate good wine.
1: Mm. I mean, just to give perspective, the distance between Reykjavik, Iceland, and Johannesburg is 10,900 kilometers, give or take. So... I mean, 11 – I'm still trying to wrap my head around what you did. But well, moving on – let's go as
0: far as we went. We only came – we came down into the Mediterranean. Yes. And, of course, I kept telling Barbara that don't worry about the Med. I didn't think – I should have remembered my Greek history about the crashes, the, the storms, etc. No, instead of that, I thought of that silly Cliff Richard song. We we're all going on a summer holiday and where the sea is blue. And all, I said, once we're in the Med, it'll be wonderful. Well, it wasn't. You have storms on the Mediterranean, which we discovered. You have fog on the Mediterranean. So when we got down to the Med, we crossed the French coast and down the Spanish coast, and we got near Barcelona. And that was after I'd gone lost in the fog uh, with Barbara, and she got very upset about that. But she got back in, and then I got this obsession to reach this little port, and the wind was coming up, the waves were clashing. Barbara sat in the front. She was my windscreen wiper. She used to cop all the spray. Remember what you used to say? What what's this going to do to my complexion? <laughs> and then she said, "Look, you must go." I said, "No, we must make it." And there was a place these um, catamarans were sliding up the beach; would have been a good place to go, but no, I had to go ahead until the sea got really rough. And then Bob said, "That's it. You go in." So I turned in, and if you're in a kayak with a hundred kilos of gear and yourselves, once you catch a wave, there's no getting out of it. You can go to the left or to the right but you have to go and as we came screaming down beautifully on this wave a rock great big rock and there'd been a storm the night before so I managed to steer to the right and instead of the beach to run up on the beach there was a little wall of sand so I screamed to Barbara throw your paddle ashore grab the painter before the next wave comes in and, and fills the boat she scrambled out threw the didn't grab the painter which is the rope in the front she stood there and I, I still I can still see her I, I'm not sure whether it was water or tears and whatnot, but her fists clenched. And I said, grab the painter, and I'm holding the bag. I was out of the kayak at that surge, holding the thing. up was the next wave hit. And she didn't, and she screamed an expletive at me, which uh, <laughs> she made me remove from the book. Just says F off. And um, <laughs> she stormed away, and that was it. And fortunately, there was some Spanish fishermen there who helped me get the kayak out. And that night, we spent – we didn't eat. We sat talking. And Barbara said, right, that's it. I'm not going any further. And I couldn't go on on my own. And so finally, at about 6 or 7 o'clock that next morning, the die was cast. And we, uh, I paddled the boat the next uh, day to, into the yacht harbor and sold it. And we headed off on, over land again.
2: Wow. Well, we, we did get to Doris es Salaam. Uh, <laughs> Two years two, Thirteen years Thirteen years Two children And two continents later <laughs> So we did get there eventually. So you did
1: accomplish the mission Or the yes. challenge rather That was directed to Thirteen
0: you. years got in the way Two children And a couple of continents Yes
2: <laughs> Wow well,
0: And a lot of mileage
1: <laughs> I get why you named kayak Amandla Given the fact that You were political exiles Did you both decide On the name And what other names
0: Were you considering no, we considered no other name because it had to be Amanda. It had I to be think power. Both, yes. And that was also the thing of the time. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, never forget, we marched in the, the big Aldermaston March, three of us. And actually, I can mention the other person. It was Barbara and myself, the whole three days with Polo Jordan marched. And when we got close into London, then the rest of them came and joined us. The rest of the ANC came out of the near pub and, and joined us. And we all had made these little, um, headbands. Which said Amanda NLF, the National Liberation Front of Vietnam, so Amanda was the big thing. we had power, we were going to have power, the world was going to have power, it was going to be a wonderful, free and oh anyhow, completely different time, <laughs> but a time we need to think back on, and in the process of which you know you can you, you learn a lot about as you travel, and I hope people do learn one person who encouraged us to do this was John Platter, who. Right. Mainly known for his wine writing, yes. but he's a, he's a travel writer and yes. war correspondent and his wife, Erica, who writes cookbooks. And he said to me, I don't know why you don't write this thing. And I, he said, because three things people like travel, nostalgia, and cookery. He said, here you've got travel. It doesn't matter the fact that, you know, it took place in 1967, 68. He said, it's full of nostalgia about a different time. And how the hell do you cook when you're traveling in a kayak? And so what we decided to do, and we've done it, and Barbara's done a cookery section and put in – because, again, from the from those postcards, she worked out her recipes.
1: <laughs> now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get um, to to the recipes um, a little later on. But, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to know more about your farewell because, as you've alluded, you had Tabumbeki, Palo Jordan, Esop, and Aziz Pahad, I believe.
0: Well, among others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amongst <laughs> other <laughs> –
1: members yeah. who were also in exile with you, I mean, when they were there bidding you farewell, did did they actually say to you, I mean, you are mad? Can we change your mind? Or was there anybody, whether family or close friends, who could change your mind or make you think otherwise about um, this uh, voyage or, or venture?
0: No, I don't think anyone did. I mean, they just thought that was, you know, they say, oh, that's crazy. Why do you want to go back? Stay on in London because we, we had these wonderful scholarships and whatnot. And I'd been offered another one to do a masters at another university. But at that stage, I couldn't tell you. I'd been unfortunately unceremoniously moved out of that, Z- deported from Zambia because they discovered I was there illegally because I came in on a rather fraudulent document and it took about four and a half months to find out. But then they couldn't let me stay, but Cohen also couldn't make it sound bad and I was then asked, the, the South African police asked for me to be extradited, so that was good. He then asked for um, me to be given political asylum and I got given political asylum by the British Labour government that had just come in. So I, the last thing I wanted to do was go to London So I think I also resented that. Barbara was quite happy being there. But I also think uh, towards the
2: end, just before we left, I think the comrades enjoyed the parties we had because we had numerous farewell parties. It wasn't just the final send-off. We had a lot of parties. And the final send-off was actually quite amazing because we came through the street in London where we lived and made our way to the river and... um, They took our paddles, so there was a lot of dancing and chanting, and And it was really a very joyous occasion.
0: But that very sort of uh, frightfully patronizing, almost racist English way that one of those papers did, and there they strolled down, uh, singing their native songs and doing native dances. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't toy-toy in those days, no. Anyhow. But it, it was, you know, but it, what I'm trying to get is it really was a different time. And I think no one, they, they thought it was we were crazy to do it, but so what? It was a crazy thing to do, but people did crazy things. Absolutely. So.
1: I mean, I've been to Zanzibar. The people are hospitable. And let's not forget their alluring uh, beauty. Moreover, it is scenic and breathtaking. And the architecture, as far as I'm concerned, is splendid. Stone town. Why did you choose Tanzania as your final destination?
0: That was the headquarters of the ANC mm. at that stage, Okay. before they moved to Lusaka.
1: Okay. I presume, I mean, you, you mentioned diary entr- entries daily and postcards uh, sent to family. I believe those helped um, in documenting your itinerary in preparation for your book. So once you started uh, writing your manuscript, was it easy to piece it, piece it all together? Uh, take me through the process.
0: Well, Barbara went to – we took out the postcards and we suddenly realized because I said I wasn't – I was not prepared to write a book on memory. And what had happened was everything we had was stolen at one stage except the clothes we stood up in and some money in our pockets and our passport. That was it. So everything having gone, including short stories that I'd written, which I've, I've never written another short story since, for example. But um, I think we, we felt, well, we're not going to write this thing. Two years in Zambia, then we got moved out. We got kicked out of Zambia again. That's another story. Then Botswana, and then New Zealand, and then the children. No, we're not going to do it on memory. But only when we took out these, when John Platter and Erica Platter said, "Why don't you look at these things?" And Bob said, "Let's look at the postcards." We realised we then had a chronological diary of the of the events. We then got the the tapes, the CDs, played them and realized we had even more. We then got the fluvio cart that won the, the um, map, the chart of all the waterways of France, and we could actually work out exactly where we were, what time, etc. We realized how fallible memory is because we had got things the wrong way around in terms of our memories. Once we'd got that, we thought, let's go. And I wasn't too keen. I thought this was a bit of an indulgence. I don't know if you know my book last year, for example, oh. F- Fordsburg Fighter. Was about an MK person who was very badly treated, etc. And my other stuff's all political, economics, etc. Yes. I thought this is a bit of an indulgence, and Bob said, "Come on, let's do it." And in the process of doing it, um, I think it was quite cathartic.
2: I think, I think it, it really was. was. It was therapeutic
0: yeah. because, and we also began to, again, I think, gain more confidence about what could happen in the future. That it's all doom and gloom now, corruption, etc., incompetence the whole works but underlying that all is still that hope as long as that's there and then you think back to that time when there was a different atmosphere a different environment right around the world despite all the horrors despite the horrors of apartheid about vietnam etc uh, the fact was even then uh, the portuguese still had their their colonies in angola Mozambique, etc um All of this was going to go. The winds of change were roaring through Africa. Southeast Asia was going to go, and the new world was going to be born. So we thought. But I think that hope still exists in people's minds. And in any event, I just thought, once I'd finished it, I thought, yes, I've enjoyed writing this. And it's completely, it's a total digression for me. But in the process of which, I think, well, perhaps it will... It's not entirely apolitical, obviously, because it comes through all where we went and why we were going to various places. I mean, when I was in France, I had to go to Saint Denis and to go up the Montmartre where the commune started in, you know, 1871 or 1871. So all that sort of thing is there. But I think it's, it's an idea that at this time, perhaps we need something a little bit lighter to remind us that there is hope beyond the horror.
2: Absolutely. And- And I think as we put it together, we kind of relived that period, and I found it very exhilarating. And suddenly realizing that uh, one of the great things about the entire trip was that we had a great feeling of freedom. You know, we we had no responsibilities. We didn't pay rent. We didn't pay to travel. We went in the canoe. We ate incredibly cheaply. We had a very small budget, and uh, it was just very. I found it quite exhilarating and that, liberating. That great feeling of freedom, despite all the misadventures.
0: But you also realize then how little you actually need to live on happily, comfortably. Sometimes we're very uncomfortable because of some of the areas <laughs> I got us into, I admit. But basically it was, it wasn't uncomfortable. It was comfortable. It was inv- invigorating. It was interesting. And you begin to realize that you don't really need all that much. And I'm glad that we, I'm glad Ooh. we spent that time.
1: And I mean, talking about comfortability, I mean, in a five meter space, you must have uh, stepped on each other's uh, toes literally and otherwise.
0: Not really, because the thing is, you're two cockpits. Barbara sat in front, I was at the back, and we paddled. The the book was originally going to be called, because when I went, Barbara always said the only thing she was angry about was what she called disdainfully my office. I had a portable typewriter, (laughs) ream of paper, carbon paper, for those people who may not know what they were, before one had digital things, you had to have bits of carbon paper to make copies, carbon (laughs) paper, my films and my camera. They were the only things Barbara maintains that were kept completely dry throughout that whole thing. And it, almost every night, I would type up everything to eventually do a book. But, of course, that got lost along the way. But on the way down, we still didn't have a working title. And coming down the Rhône, today the Rhône is not like that anymore. In those days, the, the river wasn't canalized. And the ships would come up from the Mediterranean. Or the barges, 250-ton steel barges, four of them lashed together, coming up against this incredible current. The water was flowing at 13 kilometers an hour when we were coming down. Fantastic to paddle with that. When a ship's coming up against that, how do you get out of the way? Well, you turn, but you can only paddle at about, say, three kilometers away from the bow of the ship that's steaming up towards you. And the water's carrying you even faster towards the bow. And Barbara just froze. And I screamed at her, "Paddle, damn it!" And she finally did. And as we came out of that, and we—that's terrible, and we were riding the bow waves and we were awful. But anyhow, once we got out of that, I said Barbara, "We got a title for our book." And she said, "What?" I said, "Paddle, damn it," <laughs> which she wasn't impressed with at the time. But that became our idea. "Paddle, damn it," it was going to be, because twice that happened where Barbara would freeze. When we had a ship coming right towards us or barges coming up and we had a paddle like blazes. Otherwise, they'd run us down because they couldn't stop because they were coming up river and we were coming down river. So anyhow, paddle dammit it was until even when we started writing, we called it paddle dammit, didn't we? Yeah.
2: I think we did learn a lot about ourselves. And I think we had to be incredibly tolerant with each other. That I think was a very good learning experience. Of course, we had a few run-ins particularly with all the misadventures, uh, and I stormed off a few times. But by and large, we got on really well, and I think it's probably bonded us, and that's probably why we're still together now.
0: Well, I think with the in Barbara Mutiny, that was the sort of thing, it was make or break. We were either then going to part company (laughs) and we'd never see one another again, or else I suppose... We probably, as we have done, we've just ended up together because after all of that, it was make or break. And I think at the end of the day, I suddenly thought, no, she doesn't want to go on. She's right not to want to go on because I have really put her – You know, it's all right to put my own life in danger, but I did. I realized I had put her life in danger. Yes. Even when I crossed the, the estuary very early on, the fifth day or sixth day, I was terrified, but I didn't let on to Barbara. Because at that stage, I realized just how incompetent I was. But I I braved it out. I blustered it out by saying, oh, don't worry, we'll set a new course. <laughs> you know, it was nonsense. I was actually terrified. And then I realized I can't really do this. She's been fantastic because she didn't want to come in the first place. She wanted to go by bicycles back to Africa. Um, so it's not fair. And after that night of talking, that was it. And I think that... that Resolved it. We've had a few scraps since then, but, I mean, nothing much. (laughs) You have a a chapter titled
1: Being Blasted by the Mistral. And the Mistral reaches 185 kilometers per hour at times. How did you survive that?
0: With incredible difficulty. With
2: great difficulty.
0: We were stuck at a place called Narbonne Plage, which is a holiday place where there's no one there at winter. Everything's shuttered up. And this wind started blowing. We didn't know what. They told us the Mistral's came. We didn't know Mistral wind. I mean, we'd been to Cape Town. We know what wind's like. Southern Easter. This is nothing. <laughs> boy, the Southeaster is a breeze. Oh. And this thing blew. And it blew down our tent. Even though it was way down with rocks, we caught ourselves wrapped up in the tent. We had to tie everything down. And we just didn't know what to do. And then we staggered around trying to find people. And there were no people. Until one – we walked along holding on to one another because you get blown over by the thing. And we found the only people who lived in Nalbon Plage, a little restaurant, they lived upstairs. And they were – the door was not open, but they were open. So we went in and we explained. And I heard the man say to his wife under her breath, oh, c'est fou. It's mad, <laughs> which is true. But they at least uh, prepared to give us a meal and uh, – Actually, donated a bottle of wine with the meal, which is rather good of them. But then they told us all the stories about the Mistral, which freaked us out completely. They, you know, there are all these myths about the Mistral, about old women who were crossing the road, got blown away, were never found again, and bits of their clothing were found in North Africa, they you know, blown across the mid, cars being overturned, and all this. Some of which are just exaggeration. But I mean, you can imagine then what we felt like. I said to well, Bob, this is it. We can't go ahead. So what we'll do now is we'll find somewhere, if we can, to leave the kayak, and we'll go down. This is winter. We'd also had problems, for example, in it, before we got to, to Mount Darbonne Plage. It was so cold that the dew on the fly sheet of the tent would turn into ice in the mornings. We'd have to crack the ice. So, you know, it was not, this was not my idea of a uh, summer holiday in the Mediterranean. And so we took a break. Because we found someone who came down, a man who was looking after some of the houses and fixing the shutters. And he had a key to a garage. He said, you can leave your kayak there and come back. He said, I come down every Sunday. So as long as you're here on a Sunday, I'll be here and you can take your boat out again. And we, from then we hitchhiked and got down again to Gibraltar and then went across to Morocco again to weather out a bit of time. And then I kept saying to Boba, let's go. She said, wait. Let's wait till summer. And again... I said, no, 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 no. It's spring. Spring will be wonderful. (laughs) Spring is when you have lots of bad weather. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so we went in the wrong time again.
1: So, I mean, I can only imagine you lost a lot
0: of weight. We were incredibly fit, weren't we, Barbara? Upper body strength, but we had these wonderful little white legs because, of course, you sit in the kayak and you're paddling all the time. We used to do 10 hours a day paddling. And then you suddenly realize all you've seen is water. You've spoken to no one but yourselves for 10 hours, and you've traveled 30 kilometers. And that begins to get a bit boring, too.
1: (laughs) And, I mean, during this uh, challenge, you also celebrated your first wedding anniversary, in which Barbara decided to make a dish she named, Chicken Anniversary.
0: Anniversaire.
1: Anniversaire. Yeah. So it's French. How do you pronounce it?
0: Anniversaire. Anniversaire.
1: Anniversaire. So, Barbara, as I was reading, I could feel you made that meal with passion, but in the end, it was not edible. Please elaborate.
2: I was very excited to cook this meal, and we'd stopped along the way. The day before the anniversary, we'd stopped at a village, and I'd bought, gone to a market and bought lots of vegetables, etc. We'd. Um, bought rice and a few other things and I'd left the chicken to buy the day of the anniversary so the day dawned beautiful day and a wonderful uh, very quiet part of the river canal. uh part of the canal and we um I bought the chicken and I came back and I was very excited I had uh, I had a billy, two billy cans, one that fitted in the other. So I used both of them. I usually only used one. So I cooked up the chicken and the sort of wonderful stew, and I put wine in it and really spiced it beautifully. And then I'd add, add a chicken, and I made it and put it aside and gone back to the uh, canoe and taken out the rice and cooked the other billy can with the rice and then was there the two billy cans of one with the chicken and the other with the rice and terry had gone into the village and bought a bottle of sparkling wine and he had uh, lowered it into the canal so it would get beautifully cold and uh, he opened it poured it into our tin mugs because that was the only thing we drank from and very proudly i said serve up terry went along, served it onto his his plate and he sat down and I smiled and looked at him. He started to eat it and he took one spoonful and his face was, he just looked horrified. And I went, what's wrong?
0: Well, I swallowed it though, but I, I, I felt I can't spit it out. <laughs>
2: and he said, no, don't try it. And what had happened is we had put the rice close to the paraffin in the canoe, and the paraffin had leaked into the rice, obviously the night before, and I had no idea. So So she tried
0: it and promptly burst into tears. I was
2: (laughs) so terribly upset. I can imagine. But Terry was very good. He said, no, no problem, let's drink a bit of the wine, and he went into the village. and
0: Buried the meal?
2: Buried the meal, <laughs> went into the village, <laughs> bought some baguette and some very nice French cheese and salami and I think another bottle of wine. So it ended okay. But I was terribly <laughs> upset.
1: I mean, I love that your book includes recipes of uh, meals you made throughout uh, your journey. You refer to them as... Um, one pot canoe cuisine, uh, culinary kayaking, was it easy finding ingredients um, at, at the various uh, stops, or did you just make up a meal based on
2: what you had in storage? Well, no, actually, uh, what was great in particularly in France is the um, the markets in France are just fabulous, so they have incredibly fresh stuff, a lot of Beautiful vegetables, and then, of course, you have these assortments of cheese and different kinds of salami and I actually found it quite easy so what i 'd do is we 'd go to a market and then i 'd buy lots of we ate a lot of vegetables and' would bring them back at night and then I kind of had an idea because i 'd done quite a bit of camping uh, when I was younger in South Africa, so I sort of uh, had an idea of the kind of food I wanted to cook. So we ate quite a lot of pasta and uh, sort of stews and a lot of vegetable dishes. And uh, I think we actually ate very healthily.
0: Well, Barbara had also studied dietetics at one stage. Yes. And so she had this balanced diet I thing, had you a see. So, yeah, so I, therefore we were yeah, very healthy and, of course, very, very fit. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Would you encourage a couple to do what you did? I would encourage a couple to travel. I think there is nothing like travel. Uh, I think it's the most incredible educational experience you can ever do. But unless you had a partner who was a very experienced sailor, I wouldn't advise a couple to go to <laughs> But uh, travel, yes.
0: But you see, it's also different these days. I mean... My uh, youngest brother, his daughter decided to go and travel around the world. So what did he do? He provided her with a Roma, and then he checked every day where she was. I mean, we were completely free, and I mean free in terms of having no one to report to, no one chasing us, no one looking after us. We were truly free and independent. In the days before GPSs, before cell phones, we used to write the postcards, but the mail did work. And you had the thing called post-restant, from post office to post office, and it was free in most of the places. So you'd say, oh, I'm going to be in uh, Diguan. So you'd say, our next post-restant will be P.O. Diguan. When you got to Diguan, you go to the post office, and there your mail would be waiting for you. If you didn't pick it up, they'd keep it for three months and then either return to send, or if you'd given them a forwarding address, they'd forward it. So it, it was fantastic because you really were totally independent i think unfortunately that is a time that's gone now and also it's a much more dangerous world mm. out there now than it was in our day it's still wonderful to travel and one can still do it but i think that one can be can overcompensate and i'm not saying i'm not saying they should ever follow my example i i, I learned a lot then and i don't do that anymore <laughs> But of just saying, oh, well, we'll learn as we go and what the place is, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I, I wouldn't advise that. I think read up where you're going to go. Read up what you want to do. Practice what needs to be practiced if you're going to do something like kayaking or sailing or riding even a motorbike or whatever. Make sure you know exactly what you need to know and know that you can actually do it before you go. Don't think you're going to learn it on the way because some of those things I never learned. We even found out many years later that we even had the wrong shape paddles <laughs> because I had, I had rowed when I was at school, uh, the rowing, as you know, at the, the eights and the fours. So I'd rowed in a four and whatnot. So I selected paddles that looked like that, which are actually the wrong ones for use in certain areas. I also didn't know there's a difference between river ca- kayaking and, and, and kayaking at sea. It's a big difference. Hmm. I found well, we did find that out by trial and error, but no, thank you. I advise no, one advise, I advise no one to do that. I think you should really. There are plenty of training courses, even for kayaking now, right around the world. When we left in '67, uh, there weren't any, so there's no excuse now.
1: Barbara, which city, village, or town was the most hospitable? and which would you advise for people not to bother
2: visiting? I think the the French town I enjoyed most was Egmont, Ague, um, which is right down near, well, not that far from the Mediterranean, actually, Terry. We had stopped over there, and not meaning to stay for very long, and uh, we had met a lot of people there. And as it happened, as you'd read in the book, we came back to Egmont and we had a possibility of sailing in a yacht to the Caribbean, which would have been a wonderful break for us uh, during the winter in Europe. Which never came to pass. We sat round Aigmoord for a long time, waiting for this guy to decide when he mm. was going. And in the end, he didn't go. But in the process of uh, staying there, we got to know a lot of local people. And I think that's what I missed most about this whole trip: is not meeting many people. She so just we,
0: had me for company, yeah.
2: <laughs> which was fine. But um, we met a lot of locals, and I was given quite a number of recipes by some of the holders. we spent a lovely Christmas there and we got to play a lotto in the local pub and um, just just hung out there a bit.
0: But also one must realise that Aigemort is a walled city that's a 1,000 mm. years old. The walls are still as they were. No one is allowed to even put a television aerial inside the city uh, poking above the walls. It's like a Cecil B. DeMille film set when you come down, particularly on the canal. It is absolutely phenomenal. And it it goes back, as I say, a thousand years. The two crusades set out from there. It was also the part of, after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, the the Protestants were held in the tower there, the Tour de Constance. So I think it's because we spent time there, but also because of what it it represented Mm. historically and everything, I think it was our favorite, although I like Paris. And I must say that I, I... uh, this is terrible to say because we didn't really give it a time. We were there. It rained and it poured and it sleeted and the wind howled and that was Dover. And all the people seemed miserable and probably it's changed completely today. But I think, that, I think I'd think rank Dover, wouldn't you?
2: No, I'd rank um, Narbonne Plage myself. But oh, That yes. was where we encountered the mistral. So that's probably the reason. It might be a wonderful summer French holiday resort, but yes, Dover wasn't great either. But but the rest, most of France, I would advise anyone to travel there. And you can, there are boats, you can go on pleasure boats down the Rhone and through the canals, which are actually really beautiful. So, no, no, nowhere else, just
0: Narbonne Plage. See, some of these canals are hundreds of years old, so you just chug along them because you can't destroy the banks, and you go through all the locks. We have discovered, because a young friend of ours got very inspired by hearing about our stories and went to apply to kayak through the canal, and they won't allow it. And I think it's because we may have been the first and almost certainly the last, because when we went in at Calais, we got a thing called a Canet de Passage, which is a, a piece of paper which allows a pleasure boat to travel freely through the, all the waterways of France. They were trying to encourage tourism. No one asked what size of boat. They just said pleasure boat, and I said yes. And they just said uh, nom de bateau, name of the boat, and I said Amandla. wrote it down, and they gave me this thing. And when we paddled, I know when we hit, remember the first lock, and the lock keeper looked at us, and he, <laughs> he couldn't understand this great, this tiny boat to go into this huge lock with the barges and all that sort of thing and we did we went all the way through on the and i tell you it wasn't when you have a couple of 250 ton steel barges they always make you go to the back because the barge will run you over when they start their engines when the doors open you know how a lock works yes it fills up with water or drops the water they start their engines. Of course, it pushes all the water back. And Barbara and I, I never forget the first one, <laughs> hanging onto the back while this water churned around us. Terrifying. We got very good at it, though. Ooh. But I suspect that that's why they don't allow kayaks into yeah, the
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Recently, I mean, nearly 52 years after the challenge was first issued, the two of you, with members of your family, met up with Cat uh, womington at the <laughs> riverside site of Amanda's Farewell. Take me through that moment, and I bet Kent had a lump on his throat that you accomplished his mission.
0: Yes. Well, Kent, the point is that our children who'd heard the story all the time, they said, oh, does this Kent really exist? And we said, yes, because he suddenly surfaced via, of course, the Internet, and – Barbara said, maybe he's a complete nutter. <laughs> I mean, we didn't know him that well. I mean, he must have been a bit crazy to travel all the way from Tangier in Morocco through Spain, France, right across Europe into Afghanistan to chase a hat. Maybe he's completely crazy. Well, he wasn't. But we yeah. hadn't met him. We met him then for the first time in 51 years. And he was incredible. Fantastic guy. And we had wonderful time. We, we had pictures taken, obviously, at the… Um, at the slipway, which has now gone a bit to rack and ruin. And then we went down to the pub, the old uh, 17th century dove uh, pub, where the only bit of practice we actually did do, we used to – when we had a bit of a break before we set off on this voyage, we used to get into the kayak and we'd paddle down and say, oh, Bobby, let's just pull in at the Dove. And we'd pull in at the Dove pub and we'd tie the kayak up. We'd have a few drinks, watch the water traffic, and then we'd kayak back about, you know, half a kilometer. <laughs> so that's the only practice we did. So we went to the Dove and we had lunch with um, with Kent. And we're still in contact with him. And he's now got inspired yeah. because we didn't know the details of how he pursued this hat. Murphy, who stole the hat, a Canadian <laughs> called Murphy, um, obviously heard that there was this lunatic Canadian, because, you know, Bush Telegraph went. There was the thing called the Hippie Trail that ran from Marrakesh to Kabul, and then some went on then to Sri Lanka, India, et cetera. And Murphy must have heard from other travelers, because Kent couldn't, that there's this mad Canadian after you because you stole the hat. So finally, when Kent got to Khanzi, he heard, yes, there's this hat. Person with a hat there, and he sat at the youth hostel. Uh, not a hostel, it was like a pension thing. And uh, an American came and he said, oh, Where's Murphy? so Murphy's left. He's gone south through Pakistan, going to Sri Lanka. And he thought, Oh, well, that's it. And then he told him the story of the hat. The American said, Oh, no, Murphy sold me the hat. <laughs> because Murphy must have thought, He's behind me now. He's catching I don't know whether he's a big guy. Kent is a wheedly little guy. Uh, anyhow, and Kent bought the hat back from the American. Who'd bought it from Murphy? Why people wanted this, I don't know. South Africans will know. Those awful felt olive green bush hats with a mock leopard skin band. I mean, but anyhow, I was very (laughs) fond of that hat.
1: Where can we buy the book?
0: I think the publishers tell me it's everywhere now, in all the main bookshops. in ex- almost, it, all the exclusive, exclusive bookshops and, and, and all the independent bookshops. Love Books here in Johannesburg, the independents and in the exclusives. and uh, book, Cape Lounge Don, in book Lounge in Cape Town, Town Colt yes. Bay, etc.
1: Yes. Thank you so, so much, uh, Barbara and Terry, for joining me in my opinion booth. And I repeat, I admire your chutzpah. (laughs) Congratulations on your book. It's
0: nice of you to say chutzpah. And since you use a Yiddish term, you should call me a nebbish.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My humble opinion, after all, this is the opinion booth. Travelling and adventure is the best education. You haven't lived until you explore. And in the words of Mark Twain... Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it solely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Aspire to inspire before you expire.
0: This is CliffCentral.com.